first reading is from Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 10. And should you wish to uh, follow in the Pew Bibles, you can turn up page 943. No, it's not right. I'm sorry, 612, I'm sorry. The word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. But do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and uh, to plant. And then uh, Galatians chapter 1, verses 10 through 24, and this is page 943. Am I Paul now trying to win the approval of human beings or of, or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous to the traditions of my father. But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Kephas and stay with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria Silesia, I was personally unknown uh, to the churches uh, in Judea that are in Christ. 
They only heard the report that the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Jesus Christ turned the world inside out. But it's so easy to underestimate what upheaval the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ caused. But to do that, to underestimate Christ, to domesticate him, is catastrophic, leads to all kinds of problems. And that's what was happening behind Paul's letter to the Galatians. You just heard a portion of that read. It'll be our theme book for the first part of this year. Now, most of the documents that, that make up scripture show signs of being thought carefully and measured over time, but not Galatians. It has all the marks of being rushed. It has an urgent, breathless tone and the reason? The Apostle Paul has just heard that the Christian communities which he founded in southern Turkey, you can read about it in Acts 13 and 14, are in dire peril. They are facing catastrophe. Not, as you might expect, as a result of violence and persecution from the pagans around them. No. It was a result of what other Christian people who turned up after Paul had gone were teaching them and trying to persuade them to do. Uh, Paul doesn't hold back. If you heard last week uh, from chapter 1, verse 6, Paul is appalled. I'm astonished, he writes, that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. This letter is an urgent, anguished call, to, calling upon them to come back before it's too late. Galatians has got all the subtlety and measuredness of a parent yelling at a child who's about to wander onto a freeway. Stop! One of our problems we have, however, as we read this is, Paul doesn't tell us, in as many words, what this dangerous, different gospel actually is, especially not in the opening sections, which we're looking at today in the next two weeks. To be truthful, throughout this whole letter, we're going to have to do what you can call mirror reading, that is, trying to work out what's going on, what's happening on the other side by what Paul writes against it. It's like hearing someone on the phone but not hearing the other person on the phone working out what's going on on the phone, that kind of reading. As we proceed, however, we will get some idea of the problem. At its most basic, what we'll discover is that this different gospel is a serious underplaying of the world-changing Lord Jesus Christ. The different gospel will turn out to be one which simply adds Jesus on top of an existing unchanged religious system, not a gospel which changes things. In particular, as we'll find out next week and the week after, it's denying the truth that now that the Lord Jesus Christ has given himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, 
Therefore, believing Gentiles are no longer impure and idolatrous pagans, but fellow members of God's family. More about that next week. What Paul does write about in the opening section is about himself. Once he expressed his astonishment at the Galatians so quickly deserting the one who called them in the grace of Christ, chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, and then giving a serious warning about anyone with a gospel different from the one that he proclaimed to them or they first received, Galatians 1, 8 and 9, he then spends time giving his story. In fact, we don't get to the main arguments that Paul wants to marshal from Scripture and the Galatians' own lived experience until we get to chapter 3. So today, the next two Sundays, we'll be dealing with what you might call Paul's autobiographical opening. Why? Why does he write about himself? If there's a problem in Galatia, what, why is he being talked about? Well, for two reasons. Each will lead to a point of application at the end. The first reason is this. Those who are seeking to pervert the faith of the Galatians, let's call them the agitators, the agitators have done a job on Paul. To discredit his gospel, they have discredited him. And here we're doing some mirror reading. They've said that Paul is a people pleaser, which back then meant a Jew who was compromising with pagan idolaters around them. They said he was derivative. He'd got his so-called gospel from others and then got it wrong. They said, or at least implied, that he was out of step from the real apostles, the great ones in the original Christian community in Jerusalem. Put simply, they were denying his authority to speak the truth about Christ and the Christian life. Sometimes today, people try the same thing I noticed with St. Paul even to this day. So Paul gives his story to set things straight. In fact, as you start the very opening words of the letter, you, Paul is remarkably defensive. Here are the very opening words. Normally, you just introduce yourself. Oh no, Paul's, Paul's fighting, from, comes out swinging. Galatians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me. <laughs> Paul needs to make sure the Galatians are in no doubt that his authority and commission as an agent of the gospel are straight from God, not derived secondhand from any human source. And that's the main point he makes in this section we're in tonight. So we look at verse 11. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I didn't receive from any man, nor was I taught it. I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And the rest of this chapter is really unpacking verse, verse 11, really. Verse 10 to 11. He gives a story about how this is true. That's the first reason he talks about himself. It's about authority. The second reason he writes about himself is that his encounter with Christ is a visible and vivid example, the very point he wants to make about Christ to the stupid Galatians. Now, that's not me putting them down. That's what Paul, in effect, calls them in chapter 3, verse 1 anyway. So. Because although Paul's story is, is special and unique, at the same time, it's, a, it's an example of Christ changing everything. It's a vivid example. As English scholar N.T. Wright puts it, and this is in the quotes, Paul understood his own call, zealous Pharisee summoned to become apostle to the pagans, as not only ironic, 
but paradigmatic. The gospel that was turning the world inside out had turned him inside out as well. End of quote. Paul wasn't, as it were, asking things to be in his readers he hadn't already experienced himself. So there are two reasons for this lengthy opening about himself. Remember, one to set straight and authenticate his commission from the Lord Jesus as an agent of the gospel, that is, a question of authority, and two, to show the kind of radical change that Christ had made in his life, that is, a question of the nature of the gospel of Christ. There are two reasons. Well, let's see what he says. He starts describing his previous life. This is the before. Verse 13. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Scholars have recently concluded the word translated Judaism here, hot Judaismos, doesn't mean what it means today, the Jewish religion, but describes the active promotion of a Jewish way of life. To use a modern example, the word translated Judaism here, my man of life in Judaism, is like how we use the word Islamism today. If someone said, my previous life in Islamism, you know they're not just saying they were a devout Muslim, but they were part of a movement that imposed a strict understanding of Islam on others by force, if necessary. That's what Islamism is. Same with this Judaism that Paul had a wacky way of life in. He was a part of a zealous and active movement to purify the Jewish people from pagan encroachments, to stiffen the resolve and bring shakers and compromises to heal. And this led Paul, as he says, to intensely persecute what he later found out, to his dismay, was the church of God. He continues in the next sentence, verse 14. I was advancing in Judaism beyond my own, many of my own age, among my people, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. He was right out there. And the key word here is zealous, zeal. I was extremely zealous. This is something of a technical term in those days. It didn't just mean he was personally enthusiastic in his behaviour. Zeal was about, imp about imposing behaviour on others to purify. In fact, zeal meant you go to any length, even to the point of violence, to purify God's people against compromise and danger. And there are two great examples of zeal in the scriptures that people called upon. One is Phineas in Numbers 25. He, Phineas stopped the plague against Israel by spearing a man who was having sex with a Moabite woman to death in the act of a violent murder. And he, God, of course, says to him, Phineas was zealous for my honour. The other model for zeal was the 8th century prophet Elijah, who conducted a violent campaign, including killing, against the prophets of Baal. And says to God, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. So in a world where there is filthy pagan adultery all around, Israel under pressure to compromise, the young Paul openly embraced zeal, that toxic combination of prayer, serious prayer when necessary violence, designed to purge the Jewish world of blasphemous wickedness. And what could be more blasphemously wicked than the sect who claimed a crucified man was the Messiah of Israel. That's Paul's life before Christ. What a complete revolution occurred 
in his life. What a complete revolution. He puts it in verse 15. But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by, my, by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. Now his main point is, I didn't consult, but in the way through he gives us a vivid, very brief, intense description of what happened to him. Three important features to what happened to him. One, he echoes the call of the prophet Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Jeremiah 1.5, just heard that. But also the figure in Isaiah 49. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken by name. Paul now understands his own life is like that. God had set him apart before he was born for this role. That's the first thing. And having set him apart, now God called him by his grace. And how did God call Paul by his grace? He was pleased to reveal his son in me. God unveiled his son in Paul. And this revelation of the son of God in Paul was utterly transformative. One minute, there is Paul in his zeal, persecuting Jewish followers of the false prophet, Jesus of Nazareth. Next, he's, um, that very false prophet is unveiled as the son of God in Paul. He doesn't say much about it here, but I think there's a hint of what it was like for him in a comment he makes many years later in his sec what we call the second letter to the Corinthians. I'm thinking of chapter 4, verse 6, this, I think, is autobiographical at this moment. I quote, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Christ. I'll say that again. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Christ. If Paul is here, he's drawing on his experience, we can say, not just he met the risen Jesus, but that's certainly what happened, but he saw the light of the knowledge of God's glory in his face, in the face of the crucified Jesus, now resurrected. God revealed his son in him. That's what Paul saw. And as we'll see in two weeks' time, this flipped Paul. It flipped what he lived for. It turned him inside out. Beforehand, the set of his life, as we just heard, had been the customs and traditions, the law of Moses, the Torah, the purity of Israel, the traditions of his fathers. Now it was the crucified and risen Messiah, Jesus Christ. That was now the heart of his life. In fact, he described himself having died and being, and come, it's, it's, he died, he almost said. He puts it, he'll say at the end of the autobiographical section, which we'll bring, Justin will bring to us in two weeks' time. I'm thinking of chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, page 944 of the Church Bible, although I'm using a slightly different translation. Paul writes this I have been crucified with the Messiah. I am, however, alive. But it isn't me any longer, it's the Messiah who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh. I live within the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life I live, I live within or by the faithfulness of the Son of God 
who loved me and gave yourself for me. That's how Paul was flipped. A complete reorientation of his identity. And thirdly, all this was so that, as Paul writes, I might proclaim him or preach him to the Gentiles. Now, what a turn. Here's the man who is full of zeal to protect Israel from the Gentiles, from the dirty polytheistic pagans, now commissioned by God, who's revealed his son in him, to proclaim that very Messiah to the pagans, to the Gentiles. That's his God-given commission and authority. Astounding. Now, importantly, Paul's big point is here, this was from God. He is no second-hand apostle. He says, when this happened, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. Literally, no flesh and blood. And then he gives a bit of an itinerary, which will continue next week as well. And the week after, he has a fight with Peter. So the itinerary will continue. What he says is, when this happened, he didn't consult anybody. You know what he did? He went straight down south to Arabia. By the way, Luke doesn't mention this in Acts, by the way. In fact, Luke leaves a lot out of these first 16 years. Down to Arabia, where Mount Sinai was, maybe to do an Elijah. Work with God, who knows? Then, he, then after he'd been to, bound to, to, to um, Arabia, he came back, back to Damascus. It wasn't until three years after all this that he finally went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Kephas or Peter. He saw no one else. He said, oh, no, no, there was James. I'm not lying, he says. Again, very different. Then he went up north to, to um, Cilicia, where his hometown was, where, where uh, Tarsus was, and to Syria. It will take him 14 years since he, this turnaround before he finally meets and is endorsed by the great ones, the leaders of the Christian movement in Jerusalem. 14 years before he finally gets the endorsement, because he doesn't need it. That's a, that's a matter for next week's sermon. Okay, well, that's what he tells us. You say, well, what, what, what are the two applications from this? Why is, what, why is it important what we just read? I'll give you two. One, in defending his apostolic authenticity, Paul is defending his apostolic authority. In defending his authenticity, he's defending his authority. Does that matter? certainly matters if one of the tests, if you are going to be true to the God who called you in the grace of Christ, is that you, the gospel you're standing on is the one, the same one that Paul proclaimed to the Galatians and the same one they received. Because that's the test he applies in chapter 1, 8 and 9. This means that on this matter, we need to pay very careful attention to those commissioned as authentic authority of agents of the gospel because it's a life and death matter that's why believing some false things never can harm you at all but get this wrong you're in serious trouble as Paul will point out as the letter unfolds that's why we here not just we in this church but in our wider church make so much of the New Testament sure there, there are no apostles alive but in the providence of God we have their writings, some of their writings, preserving their teaching. And although they were not written to us, they continue to have authority for us. They weren't written to us, but they continue to have authority for us. 
I mean, do you think only the foolish Galatians can dangerously go astray? We also need to keep on track by paying attention to the authentic Jesus Christ as preserved in the apostolic writings. That's why we honour the Anglican Church of Australia, honours the scriptures and receives them as the ultimate rule and standard of faith in our church. The ultimate rule and standard of faith in our church are the, are, are the canonical scriptures. That's the first application of what we read today. The second is a different one, but just as important. Although we will unpack the specific concord, contours of the false gospel the Galatians were facing as the series unfolds, already we can have this conclusion from what we've seen that Paul wrote about his own experience. The true gospel is a gospel of God's grace to the unworthy that turns everything inside out. You can't just add Jesus Christ on top of an unchanged religious system or an unchanged life. As we'll find out in more detail, the agitators were trying to simply add Jesus Christ to an unchanged Judaism. That's not our temptation. But to add him to an unchanged, complacent, middle-class sensibility might be, or a life, an unchanged life that is self-oriented. See, the gospel is not an eternal life insurance package that you can insure yourself for the future and go on living unchanged. That's a false gospel that says, promises you that. It's a gospel of, 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 which does not save, in fact, does the opposite. So the conclusion this time is this, do not make yours a little Christ. Let the one who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, let he be the one who defines your deepest identity. With that in mind, let me pray. I'm going to pray the prayer set for the feast of the conversion of St. Paul. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that through the preaching of the Apostle Paul, You've caused the light of the gospel to shine throughout the world. Grant that, as we remember his wonderful conversion, we may show our thankfulness for it by following the holy doctrine which he taught through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.